Uh, Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16. Nathan's visiting this morning, so just uh, what we do here on Sunday mornings, we just kind of work through books of the Bible, kind of like we do on Sunday school. So this is where we're at in Genesis. We've spent about the past four weeks studying uh, Abram. Uh, his name will eventually be changed to Abraham. And his wife Sarah, or Sari, but it will eventually be Sarah. And so we've spent a, a, about a month already just, just looking at these, this, these, this couple. And uh, it is a study of faith. And when I say something like that, what I'm, I'm asking us to real recognize is that, you know, there's a verse in the New Testament that actually tells us that the things that happened in the Old Testament are examples for us. So we're supposed to see what's happening with these people and learn something from it and apply it to our lives. That's the objective. And so this is a study of their faith. And as we study their faith, uh, we're going to see that there are peaks and valleys. And there are tests that come along. If we just kind of went backwards, we would recognize that Abram lived in, uh, in Mesopotamia or modern day Iraq when God promised him something. And when he promised him something, he believed him. And we talked about what that means to believe somebody. You know, you, you, you look at the person who's telling it to you, and then you ask yourself if that person can actually accomplish what they're promising. And so this is what Abram did with God, and he believed him. And so much so that he followed through with it. He became motivated, and he motivated his, his family to leave where they were at and to move to this land that God had promised. And when they got there, we find Abraham, Abram worshiping God there. So a uh, pretty good picture of faith there. You know, God made a promise. He trusted God. His faith had legs. It was a working faith. And he, he left home. And when he finally gets to the land of Canaan, we find him worshiping God. Well, there was an unforeseeable problem. There was a famine that came. And they were in a tough spot. And so they did what they thought they should do by moving into Egypt. It was a bad mistake. And when they went into Egypt, that was a kind of a lack of faith that God wasn't going to provide for them in the land of Canaan. And when they went to Egypt, they, they compounded their problems with some lies and some other things that happened. And, and it was a bad move. And that sin has consequences. And it has ramifications that carried through long after they'd finally left Egypt. As a matter of fact, when we come to chapter 16 that we're into today, we're going to see some more consequences of that decision they made. But they leave Egypt, and when they come back to Canaan, again, Abram is worshiping God. And then Lot, you know, we remember Lot, he got himself in some trouble, and Abram went to his rescue. He went to his rescue with a very small army compared to the armies of these four Mesopotamian kings that had just pretty much wiped out everybody. Uh, everybody. Um, you'll remember that study. So. Uh, the deliverance was an unmistakable miracle. It was a high point, and it took a lot of faith to go do something like that. You know, it's, I mean, if you looked at it on paper, you'd think Abram was stupid for even trying. But God wanted to get the glory. He wanted everyone to recognize that it was him that did it. And so it was such a small army, such an incredibly great victory. And then after we have so, so many good times that happen in our lives when things are going real well, that's usually not the time we're praying and trusting God. It's usually the time when we're 
just really enjoying the moment and all of a sudden we don't need God anymore. And uh, so he was confronted with another test. You know, the, the king of Sodom came to him and, and offered him some really good stuff. And at the same time, the king from Jerusalem, uh, Melchizedek, approached Abram. And even in that moment of victory, Abram made the right decision. He submitted to God by submitting himself underneath the authority of Melchizedek. But then when we came to chapter 15, after this incredible victory, we find Abram is terrified. He's overwrought with fear, and it's because he is surrounded by enemies. Egypt does not like the Hebrew people. They're sore about what happened. All of the kings in Mesopotamia that had such, I mean, just think about what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, Mesopotamia is way over here. Israel's way over here, and in between is this enormous desert. These kings had, had influence all the way around the Fertile Crescent, all the way down into the borders of Egypt. They were very powerful. Well, now he was enemies with all of them. Um, these kings in that Jordan Valley of Sodom and Gomorrah and some of those other cities that were there, they, uh, they asked Abram to become partners, enter into a partnership. You, you remember the king of Sodom made, a, made a, uh, uh, an offer to, to him. He did not accept it. He did not do it. And so he's found himself surrounded by enemies. And this is why God came to him and encouraged him by saying to, you know, stay on the path that's got the light on it. Stay on the lighted path. Uh, Darwin Miller would say, stay on the road. And so uh, God said, I will be your shield. I will be your protector. Come underneath my wings. Trust me. Depend on me. And for doing this, your reward will be great. And you know, um, reward sometimes comes in this life, sometimes it comes later. We talked about the Operation Christmas Child boxes, and so we don't even know who these boxes are going to. Some of the guys I work with who aren't even believers uh, fill these boxes out, and they give them to me, and we turn them in, and, um, which is neat. But uh, some of those guys pay the money to online so they can track the box. Well, even when you track the box, all you know is that it went to the specific country. You know who it went to. You know what happened when the box got there. You'll get to see all of those things. So when God rewards us, sometimes it's something we actually see and sometimes it's not. Now, we also notice that uh, much of, the, of our life is spent in the in-between. It's in between the goal we have and the accomplishment of the goal. It's uh, when you're going to college or when you're dating or when you're uh, when you have a child and you want the child to, to grow up to be a successful adult, there's a long journey in between, isn't there? And so we find ourselves in between God's promises and the fulfillment of his promises. And that's where most of life is at. And I told you that my dad said that, that you know, uh, life is what happens while we're trying to accomplish our goals. And that was something my dad told me because of what he saw in me, which is an incredible problem that I have, uh, which is I'm always scheming and strategizing, planning, trying to, I know what the fulfillment needs to be, so I'm working double time to get the fulfillment to occur. And so I totally identify with what Abram and Sarah did when they went to Egypt. I totally identify with what they did here in this chapter we're getting ready to read, where we don't trust God. We don't depend on him. Uh, every once in a while, I get all crazy, and I start trying to think we need another church building that's bigger. We have more space for children and a bigger yard, and we don't have a basketball goal. And I just think of all these things we don't have, 
And I start trying to figure it out, trying to figure out, find another place for us to meet. And you know, my wife will say, don't you think we should be outgrowing the building we're in before we so, so this is a problem I have. I totally understand. My dad saw that in me. He was like, you know, Craig, life's what happens while you're trying to accomplish your goals. It's the here and now. Don't miss the moments. Don't miss now. Don't miss having peace and joy in the things that are right there in front of you right now. And we can miss that. And so uh, we recognize that a lot of things are, are spent in the in-betweens. Most of our life is in-between things. Um, uh, so when God says, you know, I'm going to be your shield and I'll, I'm going to richly reward you, you will be greatly rewarded. Well, God had kind of forgot some things and he needed to be reminded. So Abram thought, well, okay, God, I hear your promise, but apparently you don't remember this promise very well. And so he says, uh, as if God didn't know. And he said, well, you know, God, um, I don't have any children. And my heir is one of my servants. And this servant, as we talked about, was Eliezer from, Eliezer from Damascus. And he was uh, born in his home and raised in his home. And he was a trusted advisor and probably raised as his son. And Abram just loved him to death. But he wasn't his own child. But he was going to be the heir. And so while God's talking all this stuff about being a shield and his reward and all this business, you know, Abram feels like he's got to remind God. Well, God says, the one that I've been talking about will come from your own body. That will be your heir. And he amplifies this in verse 13. In chapter 13, he said, the descendants that are going to come from you, Abram, are going to be like the dust of the earth. It's so many that it's impossible to count. And then here in chapter 15, we read, he compares his descendants with the stars of the heavens. So many that no one can possibly count them, as if they could be counted. And so God doubles down on his promise to him. And so when we come to chapter 16, we're 10 years into this promise. And let's just review ourselves on what the promise actually is. This is the Abrahamic covenant. It will expand over a period of time throughout the Old Testament, but this is the nuts and bolts of what God has promised to Abram. So they're 10 years into this promise, and they're getting older. They've been trying to have children, but without success. And God has said the heir will come from Abram's own body, but Sarah's not specifically identified as the mother, and so the wheels start turning, don't they? They're so thinking, hmm, okay, Sarah's not able to bear children. God's promised that the child will come from my own body. And so Sarah's wheels are turning, Abram's wheels are turning. And so this brings us to chapter 16. And in chapter 16, we have one man and two women. So we have a, definitely, we definitely have a, a recipe for disaster. <laughs> and uh, so let's begin reading in chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, Abram's wife, Sarah, had not borne him any children. She owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps I can have children by her. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as wife for him. 
And this happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. So it opens with a really whopper verse. Abram's wife, Sarah, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And by the way, I listened to this, um, this uh, Jewish rabbi was teaching on this passage. I was listening to him, and he teaches in Israel at a school there. And when he teaches, he teaches in Hebrew. And so I was paying a lot of attention to how he said Hagar, because to me it's Hagar. But when you say Hagar, I start seeing Vikings and swords and so, but he would say Hagar. And so let's try to, try to do that. Well, right off the bat here, like I said, this verse tells us an awful lot. The first thing it tells us is that Sarah is Abram's wife. What an important thing to notice. They're married. And, you know, marriage means that two people have made a covenant with each other for life in front of God. But not just in front of God, it's in front of other people so that everybody recognizes that there's been a marriage. And the last thing you want to do is bring other people into that covenant. You know, this is between a man and a woman, one flesh. They are married. And we see here that she has not been able to bear any children for him. There in verse 1, for him. What a big word, for him. You know, uh, obviously, um, Sarah would like to avoid personal shame, the ridicule of other women. Um, it would encourage her self-esteem to be able to bear children. So it's such a big deal to not be able to do that. Um, so on a personal level, obviously, Sarah wanted to have children. But she had been barren for so long that she'd moved past that. And all she could think about was her husband. That's how much she loved him. She knew about God's promise. She knew how hard they tried. And she really just wanted to do this for him. What a wonderful testimony to this woman. And then we find out that she owned a slave. Now, where is she coming from? Obviously, this is probably collateral damage from their sojourn into Egypt. This is most likely where this girl has entered the picture. They brought her with her with them when they left. And we know that there's a lot of different things about what it meant to be a servant or a slave in those days, a lot different than what comes to our mind immediately here in America. But uh, then it goes on to say that since the Lord had prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And so Abram ag agreed to that. Now, from what I understand, legal codes and uh, ma marriage contracts have been found from this period. And so this is kind of a social custom that was um, uh, followed in different circumstances. Not a completely crazy thing that she's suggesting. And at times in the Old Testament, we will see that God actually maybe permitted it to happen. But that's a lot different than God condoning it. The, the sanctity of marriage was established from the very beginnings for one man and one woman to cleave to each other, become one flesh, and that nothing should separate those two. And so uh, this is something that was, that was going on, uh, but, you know, it, it can't be something, it can't possibly be something that Sarah wanted to do. I mean, who wants to share their spouse with someone else? But 
the fact that that is so repulsive to, 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 to a person who's in a marriage, marital relationship speaks to the desperation. And that desperation that begins to turn those wheels and that problem that Craig Ball has of trying to solve the problem, you know, instead of just trusting God, waiting, being patient, waiting, you know. And so this is what's happening in this, in this home. And obviously other people, you know, would reason through their problems and they felt like this was something that they just had to do out of necessity. But here we say that Sarah's, you know, she's thinking about it. She says, perhaps through her, through her, I can build a family. And so there's doubt in that word, isn't there? And whenever we're in doubt, that is a summons to pray. We need to be careful about trying to fulfill God's promises. Well, it says that he gave her, that she gave her uh, to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. Of course, this is happening after 10 years. So we see that uh, Sarah's still, we know that, we know Sarah's heart is she, in verse 1, she was saying that she was trying to bear children for him. And then look what she's doing here. And giving her to her husband as a wife for him. She loved Abram very much, but she felt inadequate. And when she proposed this, what should Abram have done? He should have said, no. Honey, I appreciate it, but we're not doing that. That's not what we're going to do. But again, it's that, that problem that we have of trying to work through our own problems, try to solve them as best as we can. doesn't mean we're trying to be rebellious against God, but sometimes we, we start to drift away from the, from the basic principles of Scripture when we start trying to solve our problems. And it's a, it's a, it's a bad, bad, bad decision. You should have said no. Uh, but as it turns out from the book of Hebrews, we find out that what was happening behind the scenes is that God was waiting on them to get too old to have kids. Hebrews 11.2 actually says, or Hebrews 11.12 says that he actually waited until uh, they would bring a child from one who was as good as dead. In other words, they were way beyond the ability to have children. Why did God do that? You see, and so God had made a promise to them and he hadn't fulfilled it. And every day they get older and every day they get older and the women are watching their biological clock ticking and they're thinking this has got to get going and finally there's, there's you know, menopause, and you get to that place where you don't have children anymore. Now what's going to happen? This is what God did. He waited. Why did He do that? He did it because when the air finally came, it would be an unmistakable miracle. An unmistakable miracle. The book of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 12, goes on to tell us the, to be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance, patience. Now, like I said earlier, <coughs> during times of prosperity, this is not the time when we tend to pray or depend on God or to consult God. You know, taking another as his wife was violating God's order in marriage. This is something that our country has been doing for a long time. What began as living together has become so commonplace, like that's okay, that has become so common that this has given way to gay marriage and now to 
transgender sports. You know, our country legalized abortion a long time ago. And our country's been practicing this for nearly 40 years. Well, now we're trying to put the genie back in the bottle. It's not working out very well, is it? And as we speak, our country is in the process of legalizing marijuana. And what does marijuana do? I happen to know from experience that you don't make good grades. Okay? It, it takes away your initiative. And it causes cancer. So what on earth? What on earth are we doing? It's kind of like words, you know, the words that come out of your mouth. It's impossible to put the toothpaste back into the tube. It just can't be done. And so on the, on the other side of this, when we realize it was a mistake, and we start trying to put the genie back in the bottle, it's not going to go so well, is it? You know, as adults, it falls upon our shoulders to make the right decisions, the tough decisions, for our children and the inexperienced. You know, just because you're 21 and you can vote doesn't mean you know what you're doing. You know. And so the older adults need to explain to the younger adults why. Why this form of government doesn't work. Why this is a sin. Why this isn't good for our country. Um, why we shouldn't be doing some of the things we're doing. It falls on our shoulders as adults. It's very important for us to, to stand on our own two feet and to be heard. So let's continue reading in, verse, uh, chapter, in chapter 16, verse 4. So she's, she's given this Egyptian to, to Abram. Verse 4, he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she realized that she was pregnant, she looked down on her mistress. She looked down on Sarah. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms and ever since she saw that she was pregnant, she has looked down on me. May the Lord's judge between you and me. So when she realized she was pregnant, she began to look down on Abram, Abram's wife. Because here she is, she's Abram's wife too. And now she's pregnant. And she is in an incredible place of favor. And now she has began to show contempt for the one person, Sarah, who she's supposed to be submitting to. Sarah is her authority. And so you can see that Hagar is making a mistake too, isn't she? Hagar is in a place of, uh, uh, in lines of authority. God puts lines of authority in our lives to protect us. This is godly counsel. I can think of different times in my life when I have not heeded counsel that was given to me. This is the importance and the value of parents, grandparents, older leaders in churches, um, our government officials, as much as we may not like some of them. God has put them in place, and we need to be respectful of that because many times God will channel blessings and wisdom and authority down through them, guidance. And so it's foolish for us to want to step out from underneath that umbrella into the rain. And so now she is putting herself above Sarah, which is a big mistake. And when she does this, we knew what was coming. Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. And you know what? He was. He shouldn't have done it. And then as if he could wash his hands of this whole thing, which is completely impossible, he says, here's your slave in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. And so Sarah mistreated her so much that she ran away. 
I didn't read that verse to you, did I? So let's uh, let's continue. <laughs> let's start with verse six. I didn't read all of that to you. So we'll go to let's just read the chapters, beginning in verse six. So when when Sarah came to Abram and said, "This is all your fault," look what she's doing. Verse six. Abram replied to Sarah and says, "Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her." Like he could wash his hands of this thing. Like here, Sarah, this is your problem. And so then Sarah mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. And then in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. So we believe that that means she was on her way back to Egypt. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, you must go back to your mistress and submit to her mistreatment. Wow, what a thing for God to say. You must submit to her, return and submit to her mistreatment. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and there will be too many to count. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live at odds with all his brothers. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees. For she said, have I really seen here the one who sees me? That is why she named the spring a well of the living one who sees me. It is located between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son Hagar had. Abram was 86 years old, and when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now this angel of the Lord is Jesus. We've seen these theophanies throughout the Old Testament. We see in chapter 16, verse 13, that the angel of the Lord is God, the God who sees. She named the Lord, that's L-O-R-D, capital letters, that's Yahweh. So this is God. But in other places in the Bible, we find out that the angel of the Lord is also distinct from God the Father. This is Jesus. And so one example, if you're writing things down, would be 2 Samuel 24, 16. And so uh, this is Jesus. Uh, Hagar was returning to Egypt, but God told her to return and submit to her mistreatment. You know, we've talked about, when we were studying First Peter together, we talked about how uh, tests and trials and tribulations come upon the life of a believer, persecution. And if you're laying here on the table and somebody's taking a needle and they're trying to stick it in your stomach, you know, you're going to be squirming out from under that as quick as you can to get out from underneath that. You don't, you know, you're not just going to take that if you don't have to. And so this is what we do when God brings things into our lives. We try to worm out of it, get away from it. And so this is why he's saying, I have a plan, what I'm trying to do. Uh, you guys have kind of made a mistake here, but um, you need to go back. Submit to the authority I've placed over you. And if there's mistreatment, you must endure it. What a, what a thing. This is a very basic rule when we have removed ourselves from God's authority. So then God makes a series of prophetic statements to her. The first one is he says that her offspring will be too many to count. So this is that dust of the earth and stars of the heavens. Ishmael's children are going to be so numerous that you can't even count them. 
And we know this is true because he is the father of the Arab nations. And he will be named Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. So clearly this woman had a relationship with God. And that's a really neat thing to see, isn't it? So this is an Egyptian woman who at some point joined with Abram's family while they were in Egypt. And when they left Egypt, they they come to Canaan. And we know that God uh, was still a big part of Abram's life because he was worshiping God and uh, God delivered Lot. Uh, All of these things that transpired after this, the, the king of Salem with Melchizedek and just all of these incredible things, this woman has been a witness to the whole time. And she has become a believer. And so there's that, that influence that we have as Christians. There's that, that testimony that we have. There's that perfect design. Uh, you see there it says that we will be a blessing to the nations. This is your, your goal. This is my goal. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And it's the, it's the same thing for us today. You know, as a Christian, we can be self-centered and we can be consumers where all we do is we draw from everything we can. What can I get from you? And everything's coming in. There's nothing coming out. You know, but God wants us to be producers. He wants us to be a light. He wants us to be a welcome center. I've said it many times, we are the best thing that's ever happened to people. And they get to meet us because we're Christians. And so this is the nature of our walk with God. And uh, uh, we come also, we find out this wonderful prophecy about Ishmael. He's going to be like a wild donkey, you know. Uh, he's going he's to be in odds with all of his brothers. So a difficult relationship with this man, obviously, and his descendants. But uh, not only did this marital breach cause all kinds of problems at home, and we'll continue to read about those as we work our way through the entire Old Testament, there are long-term ramifications that you and I are are dealing with today. The whole Arab-Israeli conflict began with this decision that Abraham and Sarah made when they brought Hagar into their marriage. And so what we are seeing happening here just with the Jewish people, the Hebrew people at this point, is that sin is continuing to compound. You know, everything was great until Adam and Eve sinned. And when the fall occurred, there was all of these curses uh, that fell upon them and the the rest of creation and just dramatic upheaval. Uh, Everything just went south. It was bad. It was terrible. The fall we, don't, we can't even comprehend how bad the fall was. Everything changed. But that became the new norm. That's the world that you and I know. We were born into that world. But it's a terrible disaster. And when we get to Genesis chapters 5 and 6 and 7, we find out that the world has grown so bad that the, the, every living thing was destroyed except the people living on the ark. And when they came off of the ark with two of every kind, you know, things didn't really get any better because we find out that there's always going to be this enmity and distrust between man and the animals, man and creation. So that's a, that's a new problem. You know, prior to the flood, we saw that, that all of the creation became corrupted. The animals were corrupted. 
It was, and then there was the flood. So after the flood, it continues, continues to spread. We get to chapter 11, we find out that there's the Tower of Babel, and where there's this confusion of languages, and all of the things that that caused. Distrust, racism, war, fighting over the same things everybody wants, but they can't communicate with each other, they don't trust each other, nations against nations is a result of the confusing of the languages. It was a judgment that had long-term ramifications. You can see that as we go, sin continues to compound. And now, with this offspring of Hagar, what, is, what have the Hebrew people done? They've given themselves an enemy for the rest of their lives. And so sin does have tentacles, sin does have consequences. And so God is doing us a really big favor when he tells us to avoid things. So, uh, I wanted to close with just a couple things about Abram. Uh, he knew his marching orders. He knew what God wanted him to do. But like us, he struggled to trust God in the middle of those in-between times. And this is what we do too. But what was he supposed to do? He was supposed to trust God and wait for the fulfillment of the promises. And what were the promises? The promises were land, offspring, a great nation, that they would be a blessing to the world. That's the promise. And what is our promise? What has God promised to us? He has promised to come back for us. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. That's our marching orders. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And while we wait, what are we supposed to be doing? Working, serving. So that when he comes back, we're found faithful. To be found faithful. And so when we find ourselves, when we can't see past our hand, you know, you can't see the forest for the trees, you can't see past your problem, you know, this is when we can trust God because he sees the dust of the earth and he sees the stars. He sees the descendants of Ishmael are going to be too many to count. God has, has vision far beyond ours. And when we put our life in his hands, he's promised to work out everything for our good, for our benefit. That might mean returning and submitting to mistreatment, but it's still for our good. He, we have to trust him with those things. A couple of examples would be, um, last, last week we read from uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 12. I don't know if you remember that. But there was a king of Judah named Zedekiah. And he was the king of Judah when the Babylonian army surrounded Jerusalem. And the, the, the leader of that army was Nebuchadnezzar. And as this was leading up to this, there were different prophets that would talk to, talk to Zedekiah. Last week we talked from Jeremiah 34 about how the prophet Jeremiah would talk to the king. Um, one of the things that he told um, the king in chapter 32, you're already awake. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that Jeremiah told the king was that he was going to see Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to see the king. And uh, basically, that means that you are going to stand before the king of Babylon, you know. And so, uh, later, Ezekiel predicts that he would not see Babylon. In Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13. So you had a king who was being told something from two different prophets. You're going to see the king. You're not going to see Babylon. Seems like a really bad contradiction, doesn't it? Seems like the, one of the prophets is wrong. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 7, it says that 
and they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. He did see Nebuchadnezzar, but he was blind when he was brought to Babylon. You see? So when we know God's told us something, but it doesn't make any sense. We can't see how it could possibly happen. We don't see how there's any possibility for these things to work out. They do. Think about the Messiah. When you're reading the Old Testament, anticipating this coming Messiah, it must have been very confusing just to figure out where he was from. Where's the Messiah supposed to come from? Bethlehem of Euphrates, right? You know, he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. That's not the only thing we're told about him. We're told that he's a Galilean in Isaiah 9 from Capernaum. And uh, we hear in, in, in Matthew 2, verse 23, that he's referred to as a Nazarene. Well, Nazareth and Capernaum are two different places, and Bethlehem is two different places, right? Bethlehem's in Judah, and up in Galilee is the city, is the town of Nazareth and the city of Capernaum. So what on earth is happening here? And then when you come to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says that I have, out of Egypt I called my son. Now we know Jesus and we know what happens. And so we can see it, can't we? We can see how all of those things were true. But beforehand you couldn't. Andy Stanley in one of our Bible studies gave the example of um, a puzzle, a large puzzle of the Mona Lisa. And when you're up close on the puzzle and you're looking at it, you can't really see what's happening uh, and, and your eyes tend to focus just on the missing pieces. So you're trying to find the piece to put in that missing hole. But when you step away from it, you can find out that you didn't even need to have those missing pieces to see. So this is us trusting God. William Booth, as you may know who that is, he says this about faith. It is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. So let's pray.